Last week, we began God's Top Ten, a series on the Ten Commandments. God's Top Ten, it's about relationship. Many of us view the Ten Commandments in the negative because we hear about the thou shalt nots. It's always the nots. We think they were given to us by a distant, stern father living somewhere way up there in heaven that looks down and says, find out what they're doing for fun and make them stop. That's kind of the picture we get of God. We think fear is the rule, fear of God, fear of the consequences of our actions, fear that we'll have to stop having fun. For those reasons, we fear coming into contact with God. We kind of kind of stay distant. We don't want to get too close. The atheist who does not believe in God lives in fear that whatever happens in his life, he's on his own. The Christian lives in fear of, of making God angry by breaking all the rules. And we all live in fear when really we should be filled with hope. Not fear, but, but hope. Not fear making contact with God. Why? We learned that, first of all, God initiated contact with us not to punish us, but to love us. Not to punish us, but to love us. Not to keep us in line, but to have a relationship. It's a whole different motivation. It's not about rules. It's about relationship. And we all desperately want to have a positive experience with God. We want to have a positive experience In the last chapter that we looked at, we saw how the Israelites prepared to make contact with God. We prepare to make contact with God in relationship, not in fear, in community, which we're in, not isolation, and in purity, which means not in in the ordinary, but in the special. We saw the difference between a contract relationship and a covenant relationship. The contract relationship says, If you give to me, then I'll give in return. A covenant relationship says, I've already given. Just receive the gift of love and return obedience. And the Ten Commandments are part of a covenant, a covenant relationship. The Ten Commandments lay down the parameters for how to relate correctly to this awesome God who's already extended himself to you and me. He's already extended and made contact with us. This is how we relate properly. This message is entitled, God Comes First. God Comes First. It's the first commandment, and I I want us to look at the text in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 3. Exodus 20, 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Before we address the specifics of this text, I'd like to lay some additional groundwork. Why the law? Why the Ten Commandments? Why were the Ten Commandments necessary? And I want to start with three functions of the law. Three functions of the law. This is Roman numeral one. You're taking notes. Three functions of the law. The law included the Ten Commandments, which were foundational, but included far more. The first function of the law was to, letter A, regulate relationships. 
regulate relationships. There's no way that we can have a meaningful relationship with another person without guidelines of proper relating. A, a two-year-old may relate to his peers by hitting them. I don't know if you ever have observed that, but two-year-olds may like to hit. We establish guide, guidelines for a relationship and tell our two-year-old, don't hit. What are we saying? We're saying hitting is not good relationship. Okay? We learn there are certain ways we relate to people. And it's important that we understand that. There are, are accepted norms for interpersonal relationships in every culture. And most of these are not written down. They don't usually write them down. In some cultures, men greet one another by kissing them on both cheeks. Or they greet each other by shaking hands. That's kind of the common, common greeting here in America. Of course, the shaking of hands originated in ancient times when you approach someone, you opened your hand and you demonstrated you didn't have a weapon, okay? And then they didn't, neither of you have a weapon, so I guess we can shake hands and we can greet one another. That's, that's where it came from. Now we just kind of fist bump. That works too. Scandinavians, they wave. You know, we just wave. It, one of the things I've discovered in dealing with different cultures is there's something called interpersonal space. This is... In relating a relationship, we all have a comfort. And it's different in every culture. In Great Britain, the studies have shown, in Great Britain, the average distance one keeps when speaking face-to-face -face is about four feet. Four feet. So if you're talking with somebody and you start moving toward them and they're, you're four feet away, they will back up. They, they want to keep that four feet of space between that's kind of what happens in, in that particular culture. Some cultures will speak almost nose to nose, and that's fine too. I just touched the wrong button here. What did I do? I got to get this back. In this culture, okay, we'll, we'll go on. It's just a little smaller. I'll talk faster. How's that? No, okay. There are also written guidelines, which we see are universal and absolute. So the first function of the law is to regulate relationships, give parameters for relationships. The second function of the law is to maintain and protect community, to maintain and protect community. When we have more than just one person to relate to, life becomes more complex. When you're just talking to someone, you're relating to one person, it's not very complicated. You have more than that, it gets complicated. Uh, one early remembrance I have of community participation was behavior in grade school at the community drinking fountain at recess. Okay? After recess, there were guidelines. And I remember very strictly there were guidelines that we were given. They said, you all get in line. You have to stay in order. Everybody, everyone has a certain time limit. And you could drink more only after the, everyone had had a drink. Okay? There were these relational guidelines, and you didn't just crowd the, you had to get in line, and there were certain things that you wanted to do. Why did we have guidelines? For the sake of community. Now, I hate stoplights. They interrupt my schedule. Why do we have stoplights? For order and community. Without stoplights and stop signs, speed limits, lines on the road, we would have utter 
total chaos. I took a trip once to Scotland, and of course, they drive on the wrong side, the, the left side of the road. They drive on the left side of the road, and they had, they didn't have many stoplights and stop signs. They had roundabouts, roundabout after roundabout after roundabout. We had this GPS. It's one of those original GPSs. It was in a British accent. It was a very pleasant uh, lady's voice in a British accent. And said, "Roundabout, take the second exit off there." You know. So we'd go this and and we were doing this thing, but. It was interesting because we're watching. I wasn't driving. My, the guy I was with didn't trust me to drive on the right side of the road. So, so he was driving. And coming to those roundabouts, just like you find, there are certain protocols that you follow in roundabouts. Why do we have that? They're not rules that are written per se. It's just for the establishment of community. It establishes and maintains protection. The Ten Commandments, the law, maintains and protects community. The third function of the law is to guarantee justice. To guarantee justice. I did this again. What did I do? Okay. The law provides justice for those who fail to keep the rules. That's punishment. And it provides compensation for those who have been harmed by the failure of another person to keep the rules. All the law's rules are in place for one reason. Relationship. Relationship. The first Four commandments have to do with our vertical relationship. How do we relate to this God? The last six have to do with how do we relate to our fellow human beings. It's horizontal to people. God's top ten, the ten commandments, are given by God to express the parameters of relationship. And God created everything, so he has a right to make the rules. Is that right? Okay. The creator. You create something, you get to make the rules. He made the rules. God's top ten. How not to violate a relationship with God. How not to violate a relationship with our fellow human beings. Eight of the ten are expressed in the negative. You shall not. You shall not. Now in a practical sense, it's much easier to be told what we cannot do than what we have to do. So that's kind of the reason. It helps my understanding of these concepts to compare them to the marriage relationship. There are rules in every marriage relationship. Some are written, most are not. We all know that, you learn them as you go. That's what happens. Every marriage relationship has boundaries, but the rules, boundaries, and parameters bring freedom to the marriage relationship because then we don't violate our partner's character. It makes the relationship better or good. In the same way, God's top 10 are parameters of relationship with God in order to make the relationship better or good. By not violating God's character, we have an open and unhindered relationship. It's really not all that complicated. I didn't mean it's not easy. It's just not complicated. We have our vertical relationship, our horizontal relationship. And if our relationship with God is in order, the horizontal with our fellow human beings is in order. Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, 36 to 40, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Very important that we understand that. What is the greatest commandment? He replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Okay? That's the vertical. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. 
That simplifies things somewhat. The keeping of the law, God's top ten, is not an expression of legalism or fear, but an outgrowth of love for God, knowing that anything else or anything less violates that relationship. It's an outward expression of the covenant. Remember, it's the covenant relationship. Now, just a note here, all of the Ten Commandments are expressed in the second person singular. Second person singular. Some of you are wondering the grammatical nature of that. I know I wanted to make sure it's clear. In other words, it's a singular you. They were given to the community of Israel, but they were called to individuals to keep them. Now, in our language, you can mean you. We say you are doing well, because it can mean y'all. Southern said you all or y'all or you individually. These were written to a group, but every one of the commandments is written in the singular you, which means it's a responsibility of every person individually to respond to the command. They keep the commands in the context of community. community. So three functions of the law. Secondly, let's look at number, Roman numeral two, the relationship expressed. Relationship expressed. Verse two says, I am the Lord your God, or another way to say it, I am your personal God. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We, we have to understand, when we go back in history, not everyone in ancient times believed in one God, let alone a personal God. Okay? This was a new concept. Most people saw the universe as wild and chaotic. It was a jungle out there. And in their worldview, it was made up of powers fighting other powers. It was the wind against the water, the sun against the moon, the male against the female, life against death. They had gods of spring planting. They had the gods of harvest, gods who put fish in fishermen's net, and gods who took care of women at childbirth. They had gods that at times were in an uneasy truce, and there were times their gods were at war. Joy Davidman writes this. She says, Now along comes a fool from an insignificant tribe of desert wanderers and shouts that all these processes are one process from a single source that the obvious many are the unthinkable one. One. The universe was created and overseen by one God? You know, that was a foreign concept back then. Now, most of us in America, if we've been raised in the Western Hemisphere in the church, we've always taken for granted. Everybody believes in one God. No, you go to other places. They believe in millions of gods. And this Bible is unique in that it says there is one personal God. One. One. A single being, the creator of the heaven and earth, not to be bribed with golden images or children burned alive, loving only righteousness, a being who demanded your whole heart. People today believe in many gods or my, or my personal God, whoever he or she may be. God says in verse 10, I am your personal God. I've established relationship. I've demonstrated my grace and love. How, how did God demonstrate his love? We looked at it last week in, in his deliverance of the Israelites from the land of Egypt. They were delivered from slavery. That's how he revealed who he was. How has God revealed himself to you and me today? 
in Old Testament history, yes, but more importantly, he's revealed to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is his primary revelation. We find the revelation of who God is revealed in the Old Testament history in the Psalms and everywhere through it. But through the life and person of Jesus Christ, that's how we got to know him. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. God revealed himself in Jesus Christ. His life, his love, his relationship, power, and compassion. God was revealed in, to us in Jesus' willingness to love, serve, and actually die for us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's through Jesus we have redemption and deliverance. And the, the context of us receiving the Ten Commandments, it's not law, it's grace. It's grace. God already provided for the failure to keep the commandments perfectly. God already extended himself in relationship to us. He paid for our sins and we accept that and we can be in relationship with him. That's covenant relationship. That's what we live in. Because of that relationship, he gives to us as we come to number three. Condition number three, or number three, Roman numeral three. There's a condition given, condition given. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. It's universal. It's a biblical absolute. It applies to all people for all times. It transcends time, culture, seasons, and change. And it never ends. This call is for undivided allegiance, total commitment. Yahweh is a universal God. He's not territorial. He's over the whole earth, not just part of it. The whole earth is mine, says this God. And he says there are to be no other gods before me. Not meaning in order of a importance, but no means no gods even before my face. This is a radical, radical commandment. A radical, complete, no other gods before me. Not even in God's presence before his face. This command includes thought, word, and deed. Ezekiel 14 says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. That, that's where the battle lies, you know. There's something inside of us. He talks about having idols or worshiping. The, those are the hidden parts. Nobody can see it except God. But idols are gods in our hearts. Our gods can be subtle. They can be hidden. They can be nearly invisible. They're not the images we'll talk about next, necessarily. These are invisible gods which include thoughts, affections, and attitudes. Thoughts, affections, and attitudes. Maxie Dunham says, there's a sense in which this first commandment is the greatest because it gives the motivating power for all the rest. Now, few of us would ever confess to breaking this first commandment. Most of us say, oh, I, 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 I would never break that. Martin Luther wrote, whatever thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. A God is whatever a person looks to for all good things and runs to for help in trouble. So to have a God is just the same as sincerely trusting and believing in him. 
Let me ask you a couple questions. What, what brings you comfort? What brings you comfort? Just think about your life. What do you rely upon to give you a sense of well-being? When I think of comfort, I think of comfort foods. We think about comfortable gods. They're designed to make us feel comfortable. What brings you the most meaning in life? Your husband, your wife, family, friends, your job, your career path, power, prestige, sports, music, technology, school. There are a lot of things that bring meaning in life. What, what brings us security? Family, money, retirement accounts, getting out of debt. What do you love the most? Most of our potential gods seem to be good things. Okay? They're, they're good things. They're just good things that become the main thing. Let me say it again. They're good things that become the main thing. Israel lived in a world of polytheism, many gods. Parts of our world still practice polytheism. What about America? What about Christians in America today? With some of us, the question is not, do I believe in one God against many, but do I believe in one God against none? Belief in God or atheism? The philosopher Nietzsche, who's been called the author of the Goddess Dead movement, he's been called that, that. And on a restroom wall of a college campus, someone had scrawled this, this graffiti. God is dead, signed Nietzsche. Underneath, somebody added, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. Made a statement. Now, most of us would not declare ourselves to be atheists. In fact, we would declare our belief in God. But the tragedy is many of us make the choice for atheism without realizing it. Joy Davidman, in the book Smoke on the Mountain, writes that we live as atheists, not by clear conviction, but by vague drifting, not by denying God, but losing interest in him. This is practical atheism, believing in God in our minds, but living for all intents and purpose as if God does not exist or that God is irrelevant. Davidman writes, the man who says one God and does not care is an atheist in his heart. Today the commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, must include thou shalt have me. Thou shalt have me. Some are left in a vacuum without any God. In the absence of the one true God, uh, people fill it with many other gods. What are the most common gods in America today? I'm just going to address six. There are many, many things that can take our attention. I'm going to talk about six gods that I think are relevant to our discussion today. Six gods of America. It's Roman numeral four. Letter A is self. Self. Ancient worshipers were at least worshiping something, not themselves. They tried to make an image. If, they, if that didn't work, they could always make another image. So they would make different images of their gods. But today, false gods are harder to see and to find. Davidman writes, the beast in the heart is always the self 
The modern monotheist is frequently adoring his own image in the mirror. Our God can be ourself. We, we see a culture obsessed with body image or physical appearance. Our culture reflects that kind of narcissism and churches can reflect that as well. Many people go to church not to worship the one true God, but to meet their needs. Let me say that again. Many people go to church not to worship the one true God, but to meet their needs. One of the reasons we start the service by saying let's acknowledge and welcome God. He's the one that we're welcoming. Now, is he going to meet your needs? Yes, he'll meet your needs. But that's not why we worship him. We are here to worship the one true God and allow him. Otherwise, it's all about me. People say I go to church, it's all about me. It's narcissistic. In true worship, we encourage people to lay aside self-consciousness so it can be replaced with God-consciousness and have God at the center of our worship, not us. God, God comes first. Letter B, sacrifice your cause. Sacrifice your cause. We all want to have a cause that's worth sacrificing for. So we find a cause, a noble cause. Feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, saving the whales, what it might be. It might be a campaign to save the common housefly by setting traps rather than fly swatters. That's, that's a thing. That's a thing. Saving babies from abortion. There are so many things. There are many noble and righteous causes, but our cause should be the result of love for God, not a replacement for God. The third God in America, and this is a big one, it's sex. Sex. So on the front headlines of everything we look at today. Now, let me just say this. God invented sex, okay? And he made it good, okay? It's not bad. God invented sex. He made it good. Genesis 1.22 says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. After creating man, he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Sex was part of God's plan. Being fruitful. He said, all creation is to be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase in number. It's a command. It's a command. He gave all creation to be fruitful and increase in number. We are to multiply. Now the purpose, this is where, and this is a very important distinction, our culture does not get at all. The purpose of sex is procreation, not personal pleasure. Okay? The purpose of sex is not personal pleasure, it's procreation. But God made it pleasurable. Is that okay? Why did he do that? You've asked that. See, we've just we've made it all about personal pleasure. It's not about procreation. But he made it pleasurable. Why? If he didn't, then the couple who experienced childbirth pains would say, we're not doing that again. Or the sleepless nights with a newborn. Oh, man, we don't get any sleep. What were we thinking? 
Or, or their firstborn hits the terrible twos or the teen years and, and they're saying, what did we get ourselves in for? We're not going to do that again. I believe if it wasn't pleasure, mankind would have just gone extinct. I'm, I'm serious. He made us to procreate. But he also gave guidelines. What are those guidelines? One man, one woman for life in marriage, in a marriage relationship. Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. One flesh. God makes the rules. When we break the rules and we live outside of the guidelines that he gives us, there's pain and suffering and all kinds of misery. And when we live in the context of that, it's fulfilling. God made the rules. God created sex. He made it good. He made the rules for how to operate. And when you live within that, it's awesome. When something God creates is reduced to selfishness and personal gratification, if that's the main purpose, it gets perverted. And an obsession with pleasure of all kinds leads to pain. And we've seen some astonishing developments over the last 30 years or more. A few years back, there was a major clothing retail chain, Abercrombie and Fitch, that advertised their clothing in a catalog with photos of models without clothes. Really? Using sex to sell clothes with naked people. That, does that make sense? No. We have sex-crazed people on reality shows and primetime TV, sexual perversion and pornography accessible to children via the Internet, homosexuals demanding equal protection under the law for their perverted, immoral choice of lifestyle, adults preying on young, innocent children, a nation obsessed with sex, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. Sex sells everything from cars to jeans to beer to Pepsi to swimsuits to websites. Sex is the... First, a sin of the mind. Jesus says, if you look on a woman and lust, it's sin. Sex drives the media, has produced rampant immorality, perversion, adultery, marital breakups, STDs, AIDS, homosexuality, abortion on demand, teen pregnancy, out of wedlock, births. Total obsession with sex has brought gender dysphoria. Am I a male or am I a female? That all came from the perversion, the perversion of sex. That's where it started. Gender dysphoria has been called a mental illness. And it is. And now we have militant movements trying to force the acceptance of transgenderism. Where did that start? It started leaving God's plan. God's plan and purpose for sex. And Satan knows if he can destroy how God creates life. He can destroy a, an entire nation, an entire world. It's how does God create life? Through human beings uniting, becoming one flesh. It's the most sacred union. It's a picture 
of the union of Christ and his church. You know, and I know it's, it's so far from that reality right now. And so being aware of that is the beginning. That's one of the gods of America that has absolutely taken over everything today. The worship of sex has brought us a sexual revolution, record high divorce rates, pornography, sexual orientation, homosexual behavior, predatory uh, adults, sex trafficking, pedophilia. Um, if you've watched anything now, pedophilia, that it's gone from, it's gone from pedophilia, now it's, now it's, they're not pedophiles, they're called minor attracted persons, maps. They're trying to justify, trying to pass laws. All over the country, there's pressure to pass laws to decriminalize pedophilia. It's everywhere. And it's destroying lives. Child pornography. And the largest market in the world for child pornography is the United States of America. Nearly 20 years ago, a survey found that Christians looked at pornography at nearly the same rates as non-believers. This is an article from Breakpoint. In the spring of 2000, Zogby International asked more than 1,000 U.S. adults whether they had ever visited a sexually oriented website. Only one in five had done so. Among born-again Christians, 18% had gone to such sites. Just three percentage points less than the general public. When this was written, a group called Proven Men Ministries commissioned the Barna Group to examine current pornography use. Barna found that 64% of American men and 20% of women view pornography at least monthly. And for Christian men, that number was 55%. Only one out of three men had ever gone to a pornography site 20 years earlier. But now it ended up being one-third of the men under 30 visited pornography on a daily basis. Unbelievable. And the, the danger and the damage that that does. The more that allow themselves to see their sexual explicit material shapes the way they see sex, love, marriage, and women. And it's a crisis in America. We cannot isolate from the larger cultural context. So many of our social ills stem from the fact that our society is losing or abandoning the ability to see people made in the image of God. Pornography treats people as Objects in service or self-gratification. I've got, I've got a lot more in here. We don't have time to go into it today. But I think we know, and we've been aware, unless you've been hiding somewhere, that sex is one of those gods. Letter D, state. State, a god. Many make the state or government their god. This entails looking to the government to provide all the answers to life's challenges or problems. 
The answer to everything is to pass a law, legislate, give out money. And they've tried that. It doesn't always work. Then there's science. Someone once said the only ignorant and lazy call to God for help. We are intelligent. We can figure it out. We solve our own problems. We are co-workers with God. What has science brought us? Joy Davidman writes, Our sciences are no more than tools to increase our power of getting whatever we already want. They're an extension of what happened when the first savage made the first club. And unless the supreme authority of God tells us exactly how to use our new tools, we shall use them exactly as the savage used the club to beat out our neighbor's brains. Use it to dominate science, whatever that is. Science will find a way. That's what we always think. Technology, science, everything. That can be our God. Then there's society. Thou shalt serve the common good. Sounds good. But the common good has is, is morphed into extremes. That includes something called the tolerance movement. Chuck Colson wrote, Tolerance originally meant allowing people whom you believe to be wrong to live according to their beliefs without fear of reprisal. It then mutated into the idea that all beliefs are equally valid. While this was mistaken, at least it allowed for the possibility that Christians might publicly express their beliefs. Now tolerance means that no one, no one should ever hear anything that contradicts what they think or otherwise upsets them. And this is especially true if the subject is human sexuality. There are words and titles you cannot use on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Certain words you can't because it, it offends people and you can get a grade drop, you can get dismissed from class, you can be punished for using certain words that don't describe that person's title, gender, or whatever they believe. It's become just radically different. And you know that, the politically correct movement. It's crazy what has happened in our world. That's what happens when we leave God's top ten. This is just the first commandment. First commandment. We'll have no other gods before me. God comes first. I am the Lord your God. I am your personal God. You are to have no other gods before me. It's all about relationship. Let's remember. This is, it's not rules. It's about relationship. For that to happen, God, God comes first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of the universe and you set up guidelines. You set up ways that we are to relate to one another and to you. And I just pray that, that we would see where, where we fall short. God, that you would point out if there are areas in our life that, that you are not first. And Father, that we would realize that that's, all it does is take away from our relationship with you. And that you jealously guard this relationship because you love us and you want an intimate relationship with each and every one of us. You love us, you seek us, you pursue us, and I pray, God, that you 
would speak to our hearts about anything in our lives that gets in the way of that relationship with God. And we thank and praise you for that. In Jesus' name.